So before we get into the episode, I need to I need to mention that this episode is going to include some mentions of self-harm, suicide and childhood sexual assault. Hi, Delta. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Delta. Today, we've got a rivalry that's a story of two very famous painters who happen to be roommates. We have Vincent Van Gogh and Paul Gauguin. The pronunciations of these names are fun because uh, they're difficult. Van Gogh, he's from the Netherlands. He's Dutch, so the right way to say his name is probably something like Van Gogh. But Americans tend to say Van Gogh. So I'm going to go with Van Gogh. Van Gogh, Um, girl! (laughs) um, And the other guy, he's French. And so it would be more like Paul Gauguin or Gauguin. But um, I'm going to say it the American way, which is Gauguin. Okay. I see TikTok videos of people like saying, like, you're pronouncing all the designer names wrong. You don't say like, <laughs> you don't say it this way, you say it this way. And I'm like, I can't even afford them. I don't, does it really matter? I'm not in that who cares? league. I can't even carry a gucky, so right. who cares? Yeah, <laughs> completely. This is Fierce Rivalries with me, Delta Work. And with me, Kelsey Padgett. Each week I tell Delta the true story behind an infamous or an underrated rivalry with all the dramatic and sometimes petty twists and turns. And then I'll declare the winner, but not every story has a victor. Sometimes it's just about who loses more. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I see that you're drinking tea as usual when we record. What flavor do you have today? Um, this is the sleepy time tea. Oh, no. I should be drinking something like to energize, to wake me up. But I don't think that caffeine affects me. I have a problem with tea, which is that it's too hot. And I know that's very silly to say. No, it does. Yeah, you got to let it cool down a bit. And I am not patient at all. If I have purchased myself a tea or I've made a tea, I want it now. I don't want it in 10 minutes. Are you kidding and me? And every first sip is like, <gasps> it's yeah, like burning my mouth burned off. off. And Ugh. then you can't taste anything later. So Yes. So what was the point? Right. Why did we do this, tea? I get mad at It's tea. a mess. Okay. So this story happens in Europe, mostly France. This is like all around the, like the 1880s. And so... France had a lot of colonies at the time and some islands like Martinique and Tahiti. So what were things like in this time period? Cars had just been invented, so they weren't like hugely popular on the road, but you might see one or two. Homes weren't using electricity yet, but they did have gas lamps. Most people had flushing toilets, uh-huh. which is great. I love that. A flushing toilet is one of my favorite things. It's really good for them. The reason I'm telling you this whole story is because of their roommate relationship and when they finally lived together. But first, I got to tell you a little bit about each guy. So you've probably heard of Van Gogh, right? Yeah, I've heard of them both, but I didn't know that they were roommates. They were roommates. Yeah. What comes to mind when you hear Van Gogh? I mean, he's missing an ear, mm-hmm. I feel like. That's and I always true. thought that would be really cool to adopt a cat that was missing an ear and name the cat Van Gogh. Oh. 
that's very cute. I, I love that. Yeah, I like that because I like rescue cats. I have rescue cats. So you're totally right. Van Gogh is missing an ear later in life. Um, his most famous paintings are like Starry Night, which I feel like everybody has seen. And it's so often a poster or on a coffee cup. It's that picture of like a town and it's very like colorful and stars and stuff and it's very blue i did a very bad job of explaining that but you you've seen starry yeah. night you know starry night yeah 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 okay he also has got these famous paintings of sunflowers he did a lot of self-portraits which is why we probably remember that he was missing an ear so vincent van gogh in my mind he's the original emo kid okay he is the saddest guy here is a quote from him I shall have to suffer much, especially from the peculiarities I cannot change. My appearance, my way of speaking, my clothes. I shall always move in a different sphere. Wow. So he feels like an outcast and, you know, a loner. He was born in the Netherlands. His family was one of the only Protestant families in a heavily Roman Catholic town. And in fact, his dad was the priest of the Protestant church there. He loved to take nature walks. He would stop and sketch what he saw. At 16 years old, he gets an apprenticeship with his uncle, who is an art dealer, which I didn't really know that, like, art dealing was such a big job at that time but Mm. apparently it was Mm -hmm. so he starts doing that he does an apprenticeship and he eventually becomes an art dealer himself and so does his younger brother theo theo van gogh those two they're really close throughout their whole lives you'll hear more about theo as we go on so every few years vincent has bouts of what we would nowadays probably characterize as mental illness Historians have spent a lot of time diagnosing him with different things and trying to figure out what what could it have been that he was suffering from. But we can't really know what exactly it was, obviously, because, you know, we're not there with him. We can't speak to Vincent van Gogh. Right. But a lot of people thought like bipolar or depression and things like that. Eventually, he gets fired from being an art dealer because he's just not good at talking to people. And, you know, he also like started hating the idea of commodifying art, which is pretty much the whole job when you're an art dealer. Sure. It's like being like, this art will sell and this art won't. That whole deciding what art has value. So he isolates himself and he becomes very religious. And at this time, he's also very poor. He gets a job as a preacher ministering to minors. Is this a paid job? Kind of. It's paid just enough to, like, you know, allow him to eat. But it's not, like, well paid. So it's a real sad time. He's trying to live Christ-like, he said, meaning he gave away, like, all of his luxury items. Like, he only had, like, one set of clothes. He'd given everything else away. He lived in a shack on a straw mat. He didn't eat regularly or use soap. That's gross. Why is that admirable? Like, I don't know why people are like, I need to get rid of everything. I need to let you know that, like, I'm super, super humble and I don't like to be comfortable. That that shows you... That I'm a better person. That is a great question. It's so weird. I do not know why. I'm going to sacrifice anything. Get out of here. I mean, I'm going to sacrifice, but I mean, I need to use the toilet. Like, I need toilet paper. I need, you know what I mean? (laughs) Right? We live in a time with flushable toilets. Yeah. Can't we use them? Right. And he ends up getting fired because he's just being too intense. (laughs) And I think preaching that, too, to the people around him. And this is when he sort of loses his faith in organized religion and decides to go back to the only thing he ever liked, which was art. 
He said, even in that deep misery, I felt my energy revive. And I said to myself, in spite of everything, I shall rise again. I will take up my pencil, which I had forsaken in my discouragement, and I will go on with my drawing. From that moment, everything has transformed for me. Wow. So at 27 years old, he had never painted a picture in his whole life. He decides to become an artist. You know, he'd done lots of sketching, but never painted. So he begins painting, and he'll paint people, people who are out in the fields harvesting the wheat and things like that, and painting lots of peasants. He called himself like a peasant painter. After a couple of years doing this, he moves in with his brother in Paris, away from where he had been preaching with the miners. And Paris is like the capital of modern art at the time, and which makes sense that his brother is living there being an art dealer. <laughs> when he comes to Theo and he says, hey, I'm going to come move in with you in your apartment in Paris, Theo's like, no, no, you're not. We do not have enough room in this apartment for another human being. But he comes anyway. He shows wow. up anyway. Okay. And he says, Hello. Here I am. (laughs) And this will start a trend of Theo taking care of Vincent for, like, most of his life. And Paris is where he will meet his future roommate slash rival slash frenemy, Paul Gauguin. Paul Gauguin was born in Paris a few years before Van Gogh. He's, like, a little bit older. As a kid, he hated school. He always wanted to be a sailor. He said that he had a terrible itching for the unknown that makes me do things I shouldn't. He left school at 16 to become a merchant marine. And in his autobiography, because he wrote an autobiography, he like lies a lot and does a lot of self-aggrandizing. But the only thing he wrote about his time at sea was about his sexual conquests. I'm listening. You know, he sailed uh, twice to Brazil and once around the entire world. And all he had to talk about was was his sexual conquests. No mermaids? No mermaid, no, unfortunately. (laughs) He would get into fights a lot. When he was in the Navy, he got into a fight with an officer. He dunked his head in a bucket of water, like a swirly type situation. And I think this got him kicked off of that boat. And, you know, while he was away in the Navy, his mom died. Mm. And he came home and was going through her things. And he found a letter that she had written. And it said, he has made himself so unliked that he will one day find himself all alone, which is so sad wow. to say about your son. Wow. That is <laughs> yeah. really, that's really intense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. is he, he's not painting at this time. No, Paul Gauguin is not painting yet. He's just been no outlet sailing yet. around, just being a sailor guy. <laughs> sexing everyone up. That's right. That's it. Okay. He comes back to Paris and he becomes a stockbroker and he starts collecting art. And this is how his love for art begins. He gets married. He has five kids and he starts to think, well, maybe I could paint. Look at this stuff. This is really cool. So he starts painting on his on the weekends at age 25. By 25, he already has five children. He's been a stockbroker and traveled the world having sex with everyone. Yes. That's a lot. Well, it's also a lot to be a similar, probably younger. The other is younger and has already been a preacher and decided Mm -hmm. out of the air, like, I am an artist. I'm going to devote my Mm -hmm. life to painting. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't anywhere near there at 20 or 25, but okay. (laughs) Well, you got to live a lot faster in the 1880s. Yeah, you really do. You just got to, you got to do it. You got to get going. So in 1882, the stock market crashes and Paul loses his job as a stockbroker. 
instead of getting another job, he's like, I'm just going to make art now. And that didn't really work out. He was not selling any art. And after two years, he had totally eaten up all of his savings. He couldn't support his wife and his children. And they were like, goodbye, sir. We're going to go live with my mother. Okay. Wow. So... From this point forward, from when his wife left him, he only visits his family one other time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Which is real shitty. And is this, you think, because he's like depressed or he's just like happy to be done with it? I think he's happy to be done with it. Really? Yeah. He writes them a lot. There are a lot of letters between him and his family, but he does not visit his children or his wife. Huh. Yeah. Anyway. He does eventually find his, like, niche of stuff that makes him inspired and is different than what everybody else is drawing. He decides that everything in Europe is artificial and conventional and he needs something more raw. He wants to go, quote unquote, back to the source, which means he wanted to go and uh, paint pictures of people who were not European. So this is like a pretty racist idea he had. Uh Uh-huh. You know, at the time, France has these places they've colonized. And he goes to this island of Martinique where Mm. he says he becomes attracted to, quote unquote, savage primitivism. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. And he paints the women of Martinique as they transport heavy bundles of fruit on their head between the rural plantations and the urban markets. And like, of course, this is just sort of a racist notion that these people are living a more... Or a less artificial life or something. Right. When in the truth is that they have been colonized and are doing this work in order to make a living and are living under harsh conditions actually sure. created by the French colonization of the island. Anyway, so he's fetishizing people based on class and race. And this becomes sort of his brand of painting. He said, I had a decisive experience in Martinique. It was only there I felt like my real self. And one must look for me in the works I brought back from there with me if one wants to know who I am. So that's who he is. Uh, (laughs) These works get a little bit of notice when he brings them back to Paris from Martinique. And it does get noticed by one art dealer named Theo Van Gogh. After the break, we'll hear about the sparks that fly when Van Gogh and Gauguin meet. And we'll talk about some of the lesser known theories of their relationship. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So Paul Gauguin has returned from Paris with his paintings of women from Martinique. And there he meets Theo, the art dealer, and Vincent. And I sort of imagine this scene where, like, 
Gauguin and Vincent like are in the same room and you know maybe there's like romantic music playing and Vincent's eyes meet Gauguin's and it's just like the world falls away and <laughs> something like that like very cinematic but then I was thinking about it I'm like that's not really why they were attracted to each other it was not each other it was more that maybe Vincent his eyes would meet Gauguin's work and he would be like oh and have like this romantic music playing and Gauguin's eyes would meet Theo or Theo's wallet and mm. then all this music would be playing because you know Vincent loves Gauguin's work and Gauguin really wants to be a successful artist. And so that's that's where these two really form their relationship. Does a romance happen or is this like an unrequited bromance? Well, we shall see. Because okay. it's hard to know with history like this. It was the 1880s. Right. But as I go forward, we can ask that question again okay. later on. But there's definitely a business relationship that is occurring here. Here is something that Van Gogh said about Gauguin's work. Everything his hands make have a gentle, pitiful, astonishing character. People don't understand him yet, and it pains me so much to see that he does not sell anything, just like other true poets. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and Van Gogh's obsessed with living a more authentic lifestyle, you know, spending time living Christ-like. And Gauguin is sort of a similar thing, but a different side of the coin, trying to, like, go back to an earlier, less industrialized version of life by visiting these islands and living amongst the people. They kind of have, like, a similar vibe to them, a thing they're interested in. Also, neither of them get along great with other people, <laughs> and neither of them is really succeeding as being an artist or at having a family. So they're kind of meant for each other in this moment in time, I think. Do they just yeah. think like, I don't know, I, I get this impression that they think like, I'm really severe. I'm really, I'm just misunderstood. And like, they almost think it's like kind of swanky in a way, like this is going to appeal think... to people. I don't know. I think that Gauguin thinks that. I think that Vincent Van Gogh was just like literally sad. Yeah, okay. And okay. And strange and odd. Okay. In a genuine way. Which guy would you root for at this moment if you had to? And I said, maybe this is one of those, which one is less of a loser? I would say Van Gogh only yeah. because the other just seems kind of like he's just reaching for not really meaning in life, but... Just to like be successful at something or anything. And it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. what it is. Like just I want to be known for something. I want to do something that I haven't yeah. done in a way. But I feel like, like you said, Van Gogh is just like really super troubled. Yeah. And yeah. but at the same time, like, you know, I don't understand living off the fat of the land for no reason. <laughs> right. Vincent comes up with this idea that he wants to start an artist commune, like a retreat in the south of France. And he wants Gauguin to be the, like, mentor, to be the head of the artist commune. And he wants to learn from him. And Gauguin's like, no, I don't want to go be the art mentor at your commune in the middle of nowhere. No, thank you. <laughs> but Vincent says, OK, OK, OK. What if my brother supports you and me and pays us money for us to be down there in the south of France painting away? That way we're making an income while getting inspired by each other and making more paintings. 
So Vincent goes to this small town, rents out a, a whole house. It's called the, the Little Yellow House. And the town is Arles uh, in the south of France. And, you know, this is kind of the middle of nowhere. And every day they would spend all day painting. And then at night they would go out and drink. Gauguin was like a fencer, like a sword fighter. So he brought like fencing foils and masks and stuff like that. And, you know, Vincent didn't really like sports like that very much. He was much more of like a nature hike kind of guy. He said that having those sharp swords in the house made him nervous and that he hoped Gauguin would never use these infantile weapons of war. (laughs) And, you know, by the end of this period where they lived together, which was nine weeks, actually, Mm -hmm. Van Gogh ends up making 36 and Gauguin makes 21 paintings. Uh, Later, Gauguin said of it, and it's so funny because he's speaking of himself in third person here, which is very Gauguin to do. He says, though the public had no suspicion of it, two men were performing there a colossal labor that was useful to them both, perhaps to others. There are some things that bear fruit. I I know this sounds really weird, but it just surprises me that people like spoke this way. And I don't think everyone spoke this way. It's almost like the two of them like, (laughs) Because they're like, I'm severe. I have to speak this way. I have to speak in in sonnet or something. I also think Gauguin is like thinking like people are going to be reading my diary Uh when I'm dead because I'm going to be famous. So I'm going to write this down today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We remember that they're both pretty disagreeable guys, right? Neither of them got along with people very much. But so far in this house together, they seem like for the first few weeks they were doing really well. But then it just it just hits the fan. They start bickering a whole lot. A big thing they fight about is art. Gauguin, he said, like, you should add symbols into your art. You should add dreamlike objects. You should paint from your memory. And Van Gogh wanted strictly to paint what was in front of him. Okay. He didn't want to add things. He didn't want to, you know, add, like, weird meanings or stuff like that. He just wanted to paint what he saw. And, of course, both of them are painting in, like, very exaggerated colors. So they're not doing, like, hyper-realism or something like that. But they they differed a lot on this point. And it seems like not that big of a point to me, but they really fought about it. <laughs> that explanation about Van Gogh is what I get from the paintings. That, that literally, yeah. like, here's a picture of, of what I saw, but I don't get a feeling from it. I I, I do look at mm-hmm. it and I think, that looks probably like a you, what you surmise what the room looked like. Totally, totally. I agree with you. And Gauguin would agree with us as well to say, oh, yes, I am right. I know best. Mm-hmm. And they also fought over regular roommate stuff. Gauguin wrote, I was shocked everywhere and everything. I found a disorder that shocked me. His color box could hardly contain all those tubes crowded together and never closed. Van Gogh was messy with his colors right, when he's right. painting. <laughs> they also fought over the money because, as you remember, Theo is funding this adventure, right? Mm-hmm. And he's just giving them a lump sum. And it's for both of them to eat, to pay, I guess, the rent there, to go out and drink at night. And they also weekly went to the brothel. So they got to pay for that, too. Uh. And they would fight over, like, who's using too much of the money, what's it being used on. And, you know, at some point, Van Gogh gets sort of obsessive about this idea that Gauguin is going to leave. And he's like, you're going to leave and this artist commune thing isn't going to pop off. Like, we're not going to continue to paint here. I'm not going to get to be around you and have you be my art mentor. And it's just, please don't leave. Please don't leave. I can imagine that would be very annoying to Gauguin. I feel like there is an unrequited Romance, if not romance, happening here for sure. 
Well, that is exactly the next point here, that is that many people have read that this sort of obsession, they've read it in a queer lens Mm -hmm. to say that Mm -hmm. perhaps Van Gogh was in love with Gauguin. You know, we have no knowledge if anything ever happened between the two of them. But this sort of like, please don't leave me, like I just love to be around you kind of thing feels like familiar to a lot of queer people in like the like tense you can't tell somebody but you know you want to be around them all the time sort of thing i want to show you an image that van gogh painted of the postman the mailman okay who came to the house there yeah like it's just so beautiful and so like the thing that stands out to me the most of, of the postman is how like luxurious the beard is it almost looks like it had been like rolled and steamed to, to just be so presentable. It's, it's super, super beautiful and and like luxe. But also there's like a wallpaper behind that is daisies and petunias and lots of flowers. It's almost, I don't know if that's where the postman was or if that's how he sees them in sort of this like beautiful meadow. So I showed this picture to my wife and I said, yeah, tell me a straight person painted that. Right. <laughs> right. So on several occasions, this this gets a little weird. Gauguin woke up and he saw Vincent staring at him, mm-hmm. sort of standing in the doorway staring at him. So that can be interpreted in a few ways. What do you think? He was obsessed. He was obsessed, he was obsessed. with him. He wa- Yeah. So Vincent said he was just checking to make sure he was still there. But I feel like, you know, watching someone sleep is something that's really, one, creepy, or it's really like, I love you. It's very intimate. It is intimate. Yeah. It's intimate indeed. So anyway, as they fought more over money, messiness, and art, Gauguin sort of shut down. And Vincent got really loud and angry. And so the few days leading up to Christmas, it was really rainy. And, of course, they were bickering and cooped up together. And Gauguin wrote a letter to his friend and said, I, I got to get out of here. I'm leaving. This situation is not good. And on December 23rd, 1888, he went out for a walk alone. And then Vincent comes running up behind him. And then he asked him, are you really going to leave? And when Gauguin said, yeah, Vincent gave him a torn piece of newspaper and ran away. And so Gauguin looks at the newspaper and the torn little piece, it has the words printed on it, the murderer fled. Mm. Which is like really ominous, but also really confusing. What? I what mean, did, what's happening here? I, you know? you know, I think it could be sort of in like a philosophical way, like you murdered me. You, you took my heart. Yeah. Gauguin tells the same story a different way later on in his autobiography, and it's just totally different. I'll tell you. (laughs) He says that, you know, it started the same way. You know, it was coming up on Christmas and it was rainy and they were bickering. And he goes out for a walk and then he says, I heard behind me a little step that was very familiar, quick and jerky. I turned at that moment uh, when Vincent rushed at me with an open razor in his hand. My look must have at that moment been very powerful because he stopped and lowering his head, he ran back in the direction of the house. Mm. So we've gone from a story of Van Gogh coming out and being like, are you leaving me? And then leaving him with some like cryptic poetry almost to now the story is that Vincent was chasing him with a knife. <laughs> and so a news a newspaper and a knife. I mean, those are vastly different. 
The pen is mightier than the sword. For sure. <laughs> That's not what that means. Anyway, okay. Either way, Gauguin says he was disturbed enough by Vincent's behavior that he decided to stay the night in a hotel. What happens next is hotly debated. But here's my understanding of the most widely accepted version okay. of the story. After creeping Gauguin out, Vincent went back to the yellow house. And there he cut his ear off. He then wraps it in some paper. He wraps his head in bandages, puts a hat on, walks down the street, goes to the brothel, and gives his ear in that envelope to a woman who works there. And he says, keep this object carefully. And then he walks home. Why Why the? Why someone at the brothel? Great question. It has been asked throughout history, why? 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 Why did this happen? I mean, I you know, I guess maybe I don't want to hear your shit anymore. So if I take off my ear, <laughs> I don't know. That's but, great. I love that. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. That, that it is possible. It's like, but you know. But why the broth? I mean... Maybe. So, I mean, they spent a lot of time at that brothel. So, like, maybe it was a friend, you know? And or maybe maybe that is, like, the person that Gauguin was spending the most time with. Oh, could be. And wanted to maybe freak her out to be like, I would give anything kind of thing. Possibly. Possibly. But next up in the, the story of what happened is that the women at the brothel, they notify the police. And by the next morning, the police had gone to the yellow house and they came in and they found the floors and the walls splattered with blood. Upstairs, they find Vincent unconscious. And they actually thought he was dead. And at that time, Gauguin shows up. You know, remember, he spent the night at the hotel. Right. There's a crowd outside the yellow house. And he's like, what's going on? And he rushes in and he runs upstairs to Van Gogh's room and the police arrest him. And they start to question him. They said, you're accused of killing your roommate. Gauguin's freaked out and he goes to touch Van Gogh's hand and he realizes that Van Gogh is still warm. He's not dead. He's just unconscious. So they rush him to the hospital, but Gauguin is still going to be questioned by the police. And he pulls it together and he says, you know, Van Gogh must have done this to himself. This is crazy. I don't know how this happened. And they believe his story. They say, okay, sure. Sounds like it. Sounds like he cut his own ear off. But why would they, why did they automatically assume that the roommate did it if the person with the ear was in the brothel? Like somebody had possession of the ear. So I would think my first thought would be, why do you have the ear? And he's dead, or we think he's dead in here. Mm -hmm. Why would, I mean, unless they knew something that nobody else knew. Mm, right. Right. That's suspicious, right? Yeah. So Gauguin says, be kind enough to awaken this man with great care. And if he asks for me, tell him I have left for Paris. The sight of me might prove fatal to him. Mm. He doesn't even stay for Vincent to wake up. He gets the hell out of there and he is gone. So that is the official story. Okay, so there's a lot about this that is contested by a lot of different people. There are these two specific historians, though, who have come up with an alternate explanation of the events that happened. And they say, maybe it wasn't Van Gogh who cut off his ear. Maybe it was somebody else. A very different story than the one we've all been told. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. So, yes, this is the question. Did he cut off his own ear? We do know that whether it was a portion or the whole thing, some part of it was excised, yes. Yes. Okay, so the question is, did he do it himself? I mean, if Gauguin was trying to get rid of him in a way or harm him, I find it interesting that he wouldn't just stab him or slice his neck or, you know, if he's known to be somebody who jousts, why that wouldn't have been the way, why it would be like, I'm going to exclusively harm your ear, which is not something, you know, he can still paint. If he had cut his hand, he could have said, I'm going to prevent you from doing art. But cutting someone's ear, I've never, I can't imagine somebody would think that is the way I'm going to harm you. Yeah. I'm going to start cutting a portion of your ear or all of your ear off. It's an odd choice, right? So there are these two historians who in 2008 said, we've done years of research and we think it was Gauguin. We think Gauguin cut that ear off. They said that there was probably a fight in the street between these two men and it was most likely just right outside the brothel. Maybe Vincent did pull a razor on Gauguin, like Gauguin says in his autobiography, right? Maybe the two were just arguing. Either way, Gauguin maybe drew a blade. Maybe he had his fencing sword with him, something. And made some movement toward Vincent and cut off his ear. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he was trying to intimidate him. Or maybe it was on purpose. I see. Yeah. I didn't think of the idea of a fight. Was this just a slice on someone? But it was enough that there was blood everywhere and they passed out. So it sounds pretty significant. Yeah. So why do people believe this story? There are lots of little bits of evidence, but I'm going to tell you some of the ones that I find most compelling. One is that Gauguin was the only source who said that Van Gogh did it to himself. Van Gogh never says that he did it to himself. Mm. He says he can't remember what happened, which is odd to me that if you're the police, you're like, you're a suspect. And then the suspect's like, here's what happened. And you're like, "Okay, I believe you. There's a few bits more of evidence here, which is they say if it happened the way that we all accept the story that he goes inside the yellow house after their little fight in the street, he cuts off his ear, he walks to the brothel, he gives the ear, he walks back to his house, and then he goes unconscious on his bed. They say that that's too too many places to go where you would lose consciousness from loss of blood prior to that. Another thing is like, the fencing is like a clue here, right? And we've already sort of pointed to that. Gauguin left lots of personal possessions at the Yellow House when he just basically fled. In letters that he later wrote to Van Gogh, he was very insistent that he get his fencing equipment back, which oh. they find suspicious, as maybe that is the weapon that got the ear. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a little weird. There are letters between the two of them that seem to hint that they have a secret. In the first letter that Vincent wrote to Gauguin, he said, I will keep quiet about all this, and so will you. Mm. And, like, the context does not tell you what that is about. A few years later, Gauguin wrote in the letter to somebody else, but he said about Van Gogh that 
that he was a man with sealed lips. I cannot complain, saying oh. that Van Gogh is good at keeping a secret. Okay. I think it's tenuous, but there are little hints, you know? Well, remember in the beginning, there was the, the thing about when he first started talking about having his fencing stuff and he was said something to the effect of like, I'm worried about those things being around me, those those yes. weapons. I don't know. I, I'm very curious. I've never heard this before, and it makes me very interested. It's a wild theory, and, like, you know, it's something that's so funny because if I think about what do I know about art as a person who doesn't know much about art. Same. One of the first things I think of is Vincent van Gogh cut off his own ear. Yeah, absolutely. So in order to, like, rewrite that story is huge. It seems, like, fundamental to, like, your conception of, like, the tortured artist. Right. You know? So I don't know. I find it really interesting. The powers that be, like, art historians and people who are in charge of the Van Gogh name, they say this isn't true. They say, no, he did cut off his own ear. And they say, no, he was never attracted to men. Like, if you, like, Google is Van Gogh gay, mm. you can find, like, all these, like, different ex- exhibitions that are, like, FAQ. Van Gogh was never gay. Wow. <laughs> so let me tell you what happens to Vincent after all this. He recovers from his ear injury uh, only to end up at an inpatient mental health facility for about a year. And when he is there and he finally does what Gauguin wanted him to do, and he paints from memory with, like, dreamlike things in it. And that painting is the painting that we all know as Starry Night. Huh, um, okay. So some would say his best work yeah. was done following the advice of Gauguin. So for the rest of his life, Vincent would have a few months of feeling really well and then a few months of really suffering. He attempted suicide a couple of times, but he lived through it. And in 1890, his art was reviewed for the first time. He got a review published. Okay. And he sold a painting. Wow. His first painting to be sold. And it was sadly the only painting of his that sold in his lifetime. Whoa. I actually, yeah. I did not know that. I just, yeah. you know, again, assumed that all of this yeah. stuff was like being purchased all the time and there was so much out there. and No. Or like that he had a period in his life where he could like, you know, enjoy the success. Sure, sure. But no, not at all. He only ever sold one painting in his life. And pretty soon afterwards, he actually died by suicide. Wow. Vincent van Gogh's last words were, the sadness will last forever. And he died at 37 years old. Wow. I mean, he had to go out with something very, very cryptic. Everything was very cryptic and sort of like, (laughs) it seems like it would be telling, but is it telling? Because everything's left to interpretation. Truly, truly. Because what sadness? Yeah. You know, the sadness of unrequited love, the sadness of mental illness. Like, what, what are we talking about here? Gauguin, on the other hand, lives for another 15 years. He moved to Tahiti, which at the time was a French colony. And there he married a 13 year old girl. Oh. He fathered four children uh, with different women. Two of those women were underage. He financially supported none of them and treated everyone there like shit. Class act. (laughs) Truly. Wow. Gauguin, class act. Here's a quote from him that will make you curl up and die. All a painter's love goes into his work. Women are nothing but meat. I have a 15-year-old wife who cooks my simple everyday fare and gets down on her back for me whenever I want, all for a modest reward of a frock worth 10 francs a month. 
Whoa. Okay. Whoa. And was dead ass serious. This just for me solidifies what was happening with Van Gogh and the idea that like, I'll just string you along because you're nothing to me anyway. Right. All you are is a meal ticket. Like if I'm in, as long as I stay in the yellow house, I can have sex over at the brothel that's getting paid for. My food's getting paid for. You're running around scurrying, being concerned about me. I don't give a shit about anybody or anything. In fact, left and, and did even worse. Yep. You know, and it's not like he was caught on tape saying that or something. He wrote that in his autobiography. Yeah. By 1897, he was so sick from untreated syphilis that he couldn't paint or get out of bed. Mm, I mean, (laughs) you reap what you sow. Yeah. So the thing about the syphilis is that he could have gotten treatment. He could have gone back to Paris. I don't think they had a cure at the time, but they had ways to make it less bad. But if he went back to Paris, he would no longer be the painter who painted Tahitian women. Right. So he would have rather been famous for his Tahitian works than to live longer. And in 1903, he died alone and relatively unknown. Gauguin. Gross. Gross. Gross Gan. (laughs) Gross Gan. (laughs) I love that. So, Delta, who do you think won this rivalry? I mean, Van Gogh wins this, I think, for sure. I mean... Oh, what a sad life. And I mean, there's just evidence all all along the way. I feel like that he was being strung along. And yeah. I feel like Gauguin really probably knew about sort of the emotional unwellness or the emotional uh, fears that Van Gogh had and played into that and knew yeah. it and knew what his emotional state was, what his mental state was, what his heart wanted and just just abused him, really, yeah. I think. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. There's this one last thing that I wanted to point out that Gauguin wrote about Vincent. I don't have the exact quote, but he he basically says <laughs> that I did learn one thing from Van Gogh and being his roommate, and that is that there will always be someone less happy than me. Damn. <laughs> I mean, even in that, not even giving someone like the dignity. And also, too, traveling the world and then saying, I'm a hypersexual person. I've traveled the Mm -hmm. world. Now I need to settle down and I'm going to have all these children, essentially one every year, so I can show my virility Mm -hmm. and how strong I am. But then I'm going to abandon all of that um, and and, and make sure and keep at a distance. I do feel a responsibility in a way. That's why I'm going to write letters, but not enough of a responsibility to have these people around. And now, like, I need to make money. This guy really seems into me. I'll stick around as long as he's sort of... It's almost like a little bit of queer baiting in a way. Like, yeah, kind of like, um, I know he wants me around. And the more I kind of just right. ease into it, I don't really have to do anything. Right. He's obsessed with me. Yeah. So, so whatever. You know, I'm gonna and eat. his brother's paying for me yeah. to be here. So, you know, I can might eat, as well. I can go to the brothel. <laughs> He'll bro out with me and pretend he wants to go to the brothel, but he's probably not even doing anything in there. Who can say? I can say. (laughs) Van Gogh posthumously has become way more famous than Gauguin, and I think that's good. I mean, he didn't necessarily win, but because he was left so sad. But Van Gogh, to me, this abused poor soul, really, Mm -hmm. really does win in the eyes of everyone just because he wasn't treating anyone like shit. No. And he, of course, became wildly famous and 
now is really the person we all know. And uh, when we say mm-hmm. artist, we say Van Gogh. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is Fierce Rivalries, hosted by me, Delta Work. And me, Kelsey Padgett. I also produce the show. Gabriella Santana is our associate producer. Caitlin Pierce is our editor. Our production coordinators are Sasonia Davenport, Tamika Balance Kolosny, and Lily Hambly. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Josh Gibbs is our engineer. Our executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Caitlin Pierce. TJ Raphael was our development producer. 